If I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you, my name is Kelton Zacharias. I work here at the church in uh, administration. Don't get an opportunity to preach often, so I'm real thankful for this opportunity this morning. But before we get into the word, would you pray with me once, once more? Let's pray. Father, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity? Lord, that is such great news to us. Lord, we thank you for your word that reveals you as this God, the God who, who is steadfast in love and gives us forgiveness for our sins. Lord, I pray that as we, we turn to your word that you would give us wisdom, help us to understand your word. Lord, make us a people who love you in light of your great love for us. And it's in Christ's name we pray this. Amen. Well, turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 7. Starting in verse 36, you'll find that on page 864 of the Pew Bibles, and you'll be helped to keep it open this morning, as we'll spend a lot of time looking at these verses. If you don't have a Bible, or you just need an extra one, feel free to take that Pew Bible as our, uh, as our gift to you. Before we read, though, um, you might not be surprised if I told you that, that I love the Nationals. That's, that's D.C.'s Major League Baseball team. Some of you laugh, yeah. If you spend some time with me, my love for the Nationals would be obvious. Most days of the week, I, I'll be wearing some kind of Nationals attire. In the summer, I'm almost wearing a national ha- Nationals hat. If you come to my apartment, you'll see my Bryce Harper signed baseball, my Ryan Zimmerman bobblehead, even a portrait of National Stadium on my bookshelf. I drink coffee out of a Nationals mug. My car has a Nationals bumper sticker. If you spend time with me between April and October, I'll likely have gone to a game recently where I clap, cheer, sometimes boo. Well, I I think you get the picture. You would see pretty clearly that I love the Nationals. Well, what do you love like that? A love so obvious that it's evident to all. What would your coworkers? Your neighbors, your family say that you love. More importantly, what would they say about your love for God? Does the way you live and speak show that you love God or think little of Him? Well, our our text this morning includes both one of the most moving displays of love for Jesus in the Gospels and an equally obvious display of disregard for Jesus. Two people and two very different loves. And what we'll see as we read and study this passage together is the source of true love for God. To put it simply, love for God is the fruit of forgiveness from God. Let me say that again. Love for God is the fruit of forgiveness from God. Well, Read with me, Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, Weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, 
and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled a larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Amen. Well, this story is one of the clearest in the Bible on where love for God comes from. But we'll need to start our study with a little bit of context. So our outline for today has three stops. First, we'll walk through the story and get our bearings. Then we'll take a close look at each of the characters in this story. First, Simon, the Pharisee, and then the woman of the city. And as we do, I think it will become clearer and clearer that love for God is the fruit of forgiveness from God. So first, an unexpected guest, second, a Pharisee's pride, and third, a woman's love. So number one, an unexpected guest, an unexpected guest. A little bit of context in the Gospel of Luke. Up to to this point, chapter 7, Luke has told us that Jesus has experienced a meteoric rise in popularity. So listen with me to how these early chapters describe his popularity. His ministry began in earnest in chapter 4, verse 14. And in the rest of that chapter, it says, Already a report about him is spreading, and he is being glorified by all. All spoke well of him and marveled at his gracious words. All were amazed at him, so that reports about him went into every place in the surrounding region. In chapter 5, verse 1, crowds pressed in on him to hear his teaching. And even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him. Pharisees and teachers came from every village of the region. And Luke keeps going. In chapter 6, 17, Luke describes a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people that came from all around to hear him teach and be healed. In our chapter, chapter 7, verse 11, his disciples and a great crowd are following him, And what they see is reported through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Well, I think the the message is, is pretty clear. All that to say, Luke wants us to understand that Jesus was popular. His teaching was amazing. 
And lots of people were hearing it. You have to imagine thousands and thousands of people hearing Jesus' teaching and responding to it one way or another. Lots of people, including the two individuals from our text this morning. So picking up in, in verse 36, it's clear that the Pharisee Simon has already heard Jesus. So culturally, it was considered virtuous to invite a teacher over for dinner and uh, have discussion after they had taught, especially if they were from out of town. So over dinner and with guests, they would discuss what had been taught in greater detail. So Simon heard Jesus teach. He invited him over, and and Jesus comes. Some, Some more context there. At the end of verse 36, Luke says that Jesus reclined at table. So just so you understand what's going on here, family meals would involve sitting at a table, much like like we do. But at special meals like this one, guests would recline around a low table in the center of the room. Um, They would lay down on these these low couches, um, propped up on, on one arm, with one arm free to eat. So their head would be near the table and their feet um, away from the table. So that's just how it, how it looks there. Up to, the, up to this point, everything is proceeding as normal. Verse 36, a, a very normal picture of what would happen. But in verse 37, Luke almost wants to, to underline what he says next. Look there at the, the beginning of verse 37. And behold, he starts. An unexpected guest enters the scene. Now, it, it was culturally normal for people to come and go. So at special meals like this, the doors were kept open so the crowds could come and hear the conversation happening. But what was remarkable about this guest was her reputation. She was a notorious sinner. Luke calls her a woman of the city. It was likely that, that she was a prostitute, but we can't be sure. And, and notice how prompt she was in verse 37. As soon as she heard that Jesus was at the Pharisee's home, she came to see him. No delay. Based on her reaction to the news of Jesus' whereabouts, I think it's clear that she had also heard Jesus' teaching, either in person or, or by report. And that's not hard for us to believe based on what we've already heard in Luke's gospel. But she doesn't come to just be a fly on the wall and listen to the conversation. She grabbed an alabaster flask of ointment. She came with a mission on purpose. And we see her purpose unfold in the next verse, verse 38. When the woman enters the Pharisee's house, she found where Jesus was reclining at table. Remember, his his feet would be away from the table where the woman could reach them. Crying, she bends over and wets his feet with her tears, then wipes them with her hair. She kisses his feet again and again, She takes her expensive perfume and anoints his feet. Now, it takes about 10 seconds to read verse 38 out loud. You might be under the impression that all this happens quickly, quietly, in the corner of the room, with her soft whimper barely noticeable. But that's that's hardly the picture. So the word Luke uses for wet... In verse 38 and 44 is actually the same word that, that Matthew in, verse, in chapter 5, verse 45, uses for rain showers. So this is not a, a soft whimper. This is more like rain showers. Consider it in your mind's eye, what that scene would be like. 
a waterfall of, of tears streaming down her face and onto the feet below. Her whole body shuddering with her sobs. Her nose likely dripping. Her long hair exposed, wiping up the mud. Her lips pressing against feet time and time again. The pungent smell of expensive ointment wafting around the room. It's, it's a visceral image. It engages your senses. Imagine even in a room the size of this hall, if someone came in sobbing. I mean uncontrollably weeping. Big tears. So many you could wash your feet in them. Who do you think in this room would notice? What do you think the mood of the room would be like? The process he describes in, in verse 38 likely took a few minutes long. Plus, everything seems longer when you're a bit uncomfortable, doesn't it? So far from quickly, quietly in the corner of the room, every eye in the house was on this woman, watching this scene unfold. Everybody noticed, but especially the host. So that's number one, an unexpected guest. Let's, let's turn to the host, Simon. What is his response, and what does that show us about his love? So number two, a Pharisee's pride. A Pharisee's pride. So the bulk of the rest of our passage is a discussion of, of that scene, what's already transpired, explaining for us what happened behind the scene in the hearts of Simon and the woman. And it's vital to keep in mind that both Simon and the woman have already heard Jesus' teaching. But at this dinner table, we see two diff very different ways of responding. Now, Simon, we, we don't know much about. We don't know much about him, but we do know a bit about his party, the Pharisees. And up to this point in Luke's gospel, uh, many in, in his party consider Jesus a a blaspheming Sabbath breaker. But in particular, they grumble at Jesus' dining habits. In, in Luke 5, verse 30, Jesus attends another banquet hosted by Levi, a tax collector, hated by the Jews. The Pharisees asked with disdain, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? But the most striking detail about the Pharisees comes earlier in our chapter. In chapter 7, Verses 28 to 30. So look up your page a bit and, and read these verses with me, starting in verse 28. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. You'll notice in the ESV, those, those two verses, 29 and 30, are in, are in parentheses. That's kind of a signal. This is Luke's commentary on this scene, his dis, the discussion at hand. So Luke is making a very strong statement about the Pharisees, right? They had rejected God's purpose for them. Now, before we turn to verse 39... Some things can be said in, in Simon's fair favor, right? Maybe he's not like the other Pharisees who have rejected God's purposes. Maybe, maybe they wouldn't want to invite Jesus over, but, but Simon's different, maybe. You know, he took the initiative to invite Jesus into his home, uh, 
which we can assume means that he was genuinely interested in his teaching. Simon wasn't ashamed to hide his interest either, like Nicodemus in John chapter 3 who came to Jesus in the middle of the night. He respects Jesus, calling him teacher in verse 40. And if we read verse 39 in the best possible light, Simon was considering, entertaining the idea if this man was indeed a prophet. But we find, though open-minded, this Simon is easily dissuaded and unsettled. In verse 39, we have his assessment of the situation. Let's read that again. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Simon's immediate response to the remarkable incident transpiring at his dinner table is a thought that he would rather keep to himself. In Simon's mind, the only possible explanation for what's happening is that Jesus must not know who this woman is, and that's surprising to him. Obviously, anyone who knew who she is wouldn't let her touch him. And if he doesn't know that, he can't be a prophet. Well, the incredible irony that that we see is that not only does Jesus know what sort of woman is touching him, but he knows Simon's very thoughts. Jesus, in verse 40, answers Simon's thoughts. Here is Simon passing judgment on Jesus the very one appointed to be the judge of the living and the dead. Just an aside, your, your thoughts are, are not your own. right? You're never alone in your own thoughts. We're always saying something to God. So it's foolish to feel comfortable in your sins that you think are secret. But back to Simon. Instead of correcting Simon's mistaken assumptions, which, which he could have... Jesus decides to engage the man. He wants Simon to understand something about the true nature of forgiveness and love. So in in verse 41, we have uh, a simple parable. So there's one moneylender, two debtors. The first debtor owed 500 denarii, the second 50. A denarius is is simply a Roman coin worth about a, a day's wage for a day laborer. The first debtor owes about ten times what the second debtor owes. But, but in this situation, neither could pay, and the money lender cancels both of the debts. Now, the, the money lender is obviously under no obligation to forgive either debt. They don't earn the forgiveness, but, but he grants it. Having told this parable in verse 41, Jesus asks a question to Simon. He wants to get to the heart behind the two debtors, to their response to the forgiveness. So Jesus asks, which of them will love him more? Jesus wants Simon to agree on the principle from his own mouth. So Simon answers in verse 43. He says, in essence, greater love is owed by the one for whom the moneylender canceled the larger debt. So yes, Simon gets it. The the fruit of forgiveness is love, he says. And and we get this, right? If someone gives you something that you are keenly aware you don't deserve, especially when it's something you need and can't provide for yourself, like forgiveness in this parable, the proper response is love. 
Well, little does Simon realize, but Jesus' parable wasn't just an ethical exercise for the entertainment of the banquet guests. No, it was about two very real people. So Jesus applies this parable to Simon and the woman in verses 44 through 46. So in each of these verses, he compares the woman's devotion and courtesy to Simon's lack of courtesy. So we'll look at those three. First, in in verse 44. Common hospitality normally included washing feet. Right? So that day and age, there were no paved roads. You walked everywhere in in sandals. Um, And frankly, on the same paths as animals who defecated as they walked. It wasn't pretty. So it was the job of the host or the, the servant of the host to make sure guests' feet were washed. But in verse 44, we see that Simon gave no water for Jesus' feet, while the woman washed his feet with her tears. It's impossible to say if Simon failed to wash all of his guests' feet, or just Jesus. But either way, Simon's neglect is a sharp contrast to the woman's attentive care. In in verse 45, culturally, a kiss was a respectful form of greeting, much like a handshake today. But we see that Simon offered no kiss, but the woman kissed Jesus' feet ceaselessly. It was also common to anoint guests with with oil, both as a sign of blessing and simply to moisturize dry skin. They had no lotion. Oil was cheap. But in verse 46, Simon offered no oil, while the woman offers expensive and sweet-smelling ointment to anoint his feet. What these three, voice, three verses show us in cultural terms is Simon's thinly veiled hostility to Jesus. Hostility to Jesus. In his thoughts from verse 39, Simon showed contempt for the woman. In his actions, in verse 44 through 46, he shows contempt for Jesus. But why? Why? What grievance did he have? What reason for hostility? Well, I think Luke helps us understand the Pharisee's attitude in um, another part of his gospel, chapter 18, verse 9. You don't have to turn there. It's, it's a well-known parable comparing Pharisee and a notorious sinner, much like our passage today. And Luke introduces that parable with, with this comment. He says, Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. In Jesus' mind, the Pharisees treated others with contempt because they trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Or in other words, because they were proud. The fruit of pride is contempt. Do you see that in Simon How his thoughts and actions are a display of his pride? Pride, simply put, is is self-preoccupation. It isn't always high thoughts of self. It may look like self-exaltation, self-promotion, self-justification, or may look like self-degradation, self-demotion, self-condemnation. But it is always self-thoughts, preoccupying thoughts about the self. Pride makes self the center of my thoughts and ultimately in practice the universe. That's what makes it so offensive to God. 
Pride is the sin that most displays our hostility to God. We want to be at the center's. Not others, and certainly not God. Other sins may lead the sinner further away from God, but pride is, in, is unique because it is an attempt to elevate the sinner above God. That's why many call it the, the root and essence of all other sin. As C.S. Lewis put it, pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Pride always means enmity. It is enmity, and not only enmity between man and man, but enmity to God. Friends, pride is the essence of all our disobedience to God. But part of the danger of pride is that the more you have of it, the harder it is to see. It's a lens that that colors and distorts reality. Friends, Simon's contempt for others was rooted in his pride, and he was blind to it. Don't let the same be said of you. Here are a few questions to help us detect pride in our own hearts. Listen and consider if you see these things in your own life. Is it easy for you to see faults in others? Is it easy for you to treat others harshly for their faults? Do you neglect others when they have nothing to offer in return? Is your life marked by strife and enmity with those around you? Do you find yourself preoccupied with how people perceive you, and are you desperate for attention? Do you defend yourself when challenged or rebuked? Any of those might be signs that you have pride in your heart, the same pride that operated in Simon's heart. Friend, if you see them, put it to death. But in in answering these questions, don't be tempted to swing to pride's counterfeit version of humility. You might feel really down because, like me, you found it really easy to answer yes to all those questions. But self-pity is as much rooted in pride as self-exaltation. The true opposite of pride is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. The antidote to pride is rich, deep, and true thoughts about God. The kind of thoughts that filled the mind of the sinful woman. So let's turn our thoughts to her and what occupied her mind. So number three, a woman's love. A woman's love. So one of the the most remarkable things about this story is the woman's self-forgetfulness. She was not thinking of herself. She was thinking of Jesus. Let's get into her shoes a bit more. Like Simon, we don't know much about this woman. We don't know her name. She never even says a word. But we do know something very important. She was a notorious sinner. Verse 37 again, it gives us her her public identity. A woman of the city. A sinner. As soon as people saw her, they knew her by reputation. From verse 39... We know that this was common knowledge to Simon, and it seems to all, right? He expected Jesus to know this. In verse 47, Jesus confirms what we all suspect, that this woman had committed many sins, many well-known sins. And this is Jesus saying that. Again, the one appointed to judge the living and the dead. How, How sobering. 
I wonder if you can relate to her infamous notoriety. You might recall reading The Scarlet Letter, the story of an adulterous woman who is forced to wear a scarlet A on her dress and stand in public to be exposed to humiliation. Or maybe you think of any of the numerous scandals, local or national, that occupy the airwaves day in and day out. Or, or maybe it's something closer to home, something that happened in your life, something shameful that you feel defined by and known for that won't go away. Well, whatever the case, we can imagine what life must have been like for her. We can imagine what it's like to be known around town for your immorality, what that must have have felt like. She couldn't even go to market without seeing the sideways glances or overhearing the the whispers of gossip. The, The Pharisees, the spiritual leaders of her day, treated her with disdain. They didn't even want to be touched by her. She was likely burdened by shame, bitterness, despair. She probably wanted nothing more than to hide and be forgotten by everybody. Probably. But contrary to our expectations, she is nothing like that at Simon's dinner party. Right? Instead of hiding, she acts in a way that attracts the attention of everyone in the room. Here with a Pharisee at hand. This woman couldn't care less about what Simon and the people at the banquet thought of her. She gives no thought to them. With one thing occupying her thoughts, Jesus Christ. She is the polar opposite of Simon. Well, what gifts? What could cause a person with such a negative public notoriety become so carefree? Well, in in verse 47, Jesus peels back the curtain on this woman's heart and shows us what motivates her. The extraordinary and extravagant display of love in the preceding verses is the fruit of one great change in her life. Jesus tells us in verse 47, he says, Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. In in case you're confused by the language of verse 47, her love was not the cause of her forgiveness. Right? So the the four of verse 47, her sins are forgiven for she loved much, is not explaining cause and effect, like she loved and is therefore forgiven. Rather, it has an evidential sense, like how do you know she is forgiven? Look at her love. And this understanding of verse 47 is confirmed by the previous parable. Right? So if you remember that parable, love is evidence of a previous forgiven, forgiveness granted by the moneylender. So it is with the woman. Love is not the cause of her forgiveness. Rather, her love for God is the fruit of forgiveness from God. This woman, in hearing the teaching of Jesus, heard the greatest news she could imagine. All the sins that brought her notoriety and shame in the eyes of the world could be forgiven by the mercies of God through Jesus Christ. In the light of this news, her fear of what people thought of her melted away. She was absolutely free. Fear of man is, is a snare. If you're, you're always concerned with what other people think of you, you'll always be living for their pleasure. But do you see how that's also pride? Just another shape of self-preoccupation? 
And true forgiveness is its antidote. That's, that's what is meant by Psalm 130, verse 4, what we read earlier. It says, with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. If you haven't thought about that verse, you might think it sounds a little bit backwards, right? I thought people who aren't forgiven should fear God. Well, yes, that's true in one sense. You should fear God if you're not forgiven. But the fear of Psalm 130, verse 4, is not the fear of a judge, but the fear of reverent awe. It's the fear of true worship. The fear of real love for God. But you might think, what about that phrase at the end of verse 47? What about those who are forgiven little and love little? Well, do they not fear God in this sense? Well, I would encourage us to think of this as a rhetorical device. Jesus does something very similar in two other places in very similar contexts. So the first is is Luke chapter 5, verses 30 through 32. They say this, And the Pharisees and their, their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Or another example, Luke 15, verses 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Then in verses 3 through 6, Jesus tells the parable of a lost sheep being found and concludes in verse 7, Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Well, after reading those two sections, you might think, well, who are the well in no need of a physician? Who are the ninety-nine sheep still at home that don't need to be found? Well, in reality, there are none who are well and in no need of a physician. There are no 99 non-straying sheep who don't need to be found. No, the Bible says we all, like sheep, have gone astray, every one to his own way. In simple terms, there are none who are righteous who don't need to be called to repentance, and therefore there are none who are forgiven little and therefore love little. Really, in, in verse 47 and in these other places, Jesus is speaking in terms of self perception. How do you consider yourself? Well or sick and in need of a physician? Right at home or lost and in need of a shepherd? Do you trust in yourself that you are righteous or are you a sinner? Have you been forgiven little and love little or forgiven much and should love much? Because really Jesus has nothing to offer If you don't think you need him. Nietzsche, the 19th century philosopher and and scathing critic of Christianity, put it like this. Christianity needs sickness. Making sickness is the true hidden objective of the church's whole system of salvation procedures. One is not converted to Christianity. One must be sufficiently sick for it. And in one sense, he's wrong. Christianity is not here to make you sick. You are already sick. Pride comes natural to our hearts. We are born denying our dependency on God. But surprisingly, in another sense, he was on to something. 
If you don't think you're sick, you'll think Christianity has nothing to offer. And really, that's at the heart of the difference between Simon and the woman. Simon thought he was well, and the woman knew that she wasn't. As hard as her life must have been, it was used by God to teach her one great thing. She was in desperate need of help. But Simon was too proud to see the same truth. How about you? How do you assess yourself? You might feel like you haven't really sinned much, to be honest. Sure, you're no Mother Teresa, as the thought goes. But come on, there's a long way before you're you're Hitler. Maybe you were saved by God at a very young age, before you got caught up in all the sinful decisions of your peers. Praise God for those kinds of testimonies. Those are exactly the kinds of testimonies we want for all our children. But does that mean that you've been forgiven little and therefore love little? No. No. It's not a matter of the quantity or frequency of your sin. It's the gravity of your sin. We, we don't measure our sin by comparing them to those of others, but by holding them in the light of God's absolute holiness and goodness. God in his holiness is high above us. He is far from us. He dwells in unapproachable light. He is a consuming fire. And all this is figurative language to teach us one great truth, that God is completely and utterly good. Even the slightest tinge of evil is completely abominable to Him. And in His goodness, He will judge every little bit of evil. Sin's gravity comes from the one we offend by it. Do you doubt that? You only need to look at the cross to assess the true gravity of sin. You know, if if your sins weren't all that bad, there probably would have been an easy way to deal with them. But they're great. Christ had to endure a gruesome and terrible fate because of the exceeding sinfulness of our offenses and our complete inability to please a holy God. Don't underestimate how undeserving you are because it will only make you ungrateful for the sacrifice that cancels our debt. The London pastor C.H. Spurgeon put it like this, Our estimation of sin is, after all, the thing which will create and inflame our love. If a man thinks sin to be exceedingly sinful and feels it to be so, he has a deeper sense of his indebtedness than the man who may have committed grosser vices but has never seen them in their real blackness as they appear in the light of God's countenance. Too many believers know little of what it is to be amazed and astounded at the heinousness of their transgressions. When we have a deeper sense of the real blackness of our sin, then the light of the glory of the gospel shines all the brighter. Friends, the good news of the gospel is that though you are sick and lost and in need of forgiveness, more than you even understand, there is a physician, a shepherd, a savior. In light of the real gravity of our sins, there is yet hope. 
God, in his love, did not leave this woman in the shame of her sin, and nor us. From eternity past, he planned a divine rescue. Jesus Christ was promised by the prophets and foreshadowed by the Old Testament. In the fullness of time, he came to live a life of perfect obedience to the law. He was perfectly righteous and holy, like we could not be. And though he did not deserve death, he willingly offered him as a sacrifice for our sins. In the wisdom of God, Christ on the cross took on all our sins, whether notorious or unknown, upon himself to bear the wrath of God against sin. He suffered the punishment our sins deserve, so that we can receive instead grace. And by repenting of your sin and trusting in his sufficient sacrifice, you have the same thing this woman had, forgiveness of sins. This is the news that our unnamed woman understood. Her love for God is the fruit of forgiveness from God in the gospel. Well, I think we should learn some important lessons from her. So we'll close with two simple points of application. Know your sin and love your Savior. Know your sin and love your Savior. So first, know your sin. I think the Apostle Paul is a great example of this. So at one point, Paul was a persecutor and executor of Christians. But then he had an encounter with Jesus and a new real forgiveness. He dedicated his life to preaching this forgiveness through the gospel. And around 30 years later, after his conversion, he wrote the book of 1 Timothy. Now, despite the years that had passed, listen to how he speaks about his sin. 1 Timothy 1.15 The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. That's Paul. After being a Christian for 30 years, he's no light, lightweight Christian. There are two reasons he might say this. He is either very, still very familiar with his former persecution of the church, he remembers that, or he's otherwise deeply aware of his ongoing struggle by, uh, with sin by the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Either way, Paul knew his sin. He knew it well. He says in the present tense, 30 years after his conversion, that he is the foremost of sinners. Yes, I think by Paul's example, I am saying that we should, we should um, not only consider ourselves sinners, but to actually work to cultivate a sense of our sin. This practice is appropriate, beneficial, and biblical. But I will say that, that some people don't need to hear this. You're already well aware of your sin, past and present, so this isn't for you. I think you have other things you need to work on, namely remembering the forgiveness of sins. But I would guess most of us aren't as familiar with the guilt of our sins as Spurgeon would have us. Like he said, too many believers know little of what it is to be amazed and astounded at the heinousness of their transgressions. John Owen, a Puritan theologian, had some pretty particular advice when it comes to this. He thinks it's our duty to get a clear and abiding sense upon your mind and conscience of the guilt, danger, and evil of your sin. He goes so far as to say, 
use and exercise yourself to such meditations as may serve to fill you at all times with self-abasement and thoughts of your own vileness. That's pretty heavy language. But I think he's on to something. It's biblical not to minimize sin, but to mourn it. Now, this isn't heaping condemnation on ourselves, for in Christ Jesus there is no condemnation. But it is appropriate for us to realize, yes, it was our sins that held him there. Our sin grieves the Spirit of God, according to Ephesians 4.30. Well, how do you do this? What meditations will serve this? A few ideas. First, regularly and frequently confess your sin. Don't wait for Sunday service prayers to confess your sin. Don't just confess your sin when you think of it. Make it a regular habit in your devotional life to examine yourself and confess sins. In other words, invite the Spirit of God to show you and convict you of your sins. And confess them. Mourn them for what they are. The sins that nail Jesus to that cross. Second, share your testimony. And when you have opportunity, ask others to share their testimony. Talk about the ways you struggled with sin in, in ways that are appropriate and how the Lord delivered them, delivered you from them. And don't just share your testimony up to the point that you were saved, right? Keep going. How are you being saved from your sin? Why don't you do that over lunch today? But even with these ideas, this isn't feeling guilty as a form of penance or something like that. Our, our guilt for our sin does not save us from our sin. No, the purpose of cultivating an abiding sense of our sin is to cultivate an abiding love for our Savior. So application number two, and we'll conclude with this, love your Savior. Love your Savior. You know, you'll notice that no one had to tell this woman to go love Jesus. We can't imagine this woman hearing the teaching of Jesus, then hearing that he was in town and just going home quietly and getting on with life. Because she knew her sin, and the, the news of forgiveness of sin changed her life. And love for the Savior just flowed out of her. It's, it's almost like a papier-mâché volcano. You, you know what I'm talking about, right? If you haven't made one, I'm, I'm sure you've seen one. It's that, that combination of a bottle and strips of newspaper. You've got your flour and water paste, some paint. With some elbow grease, you have a volcano. In order to make that volcano erupt, though, you need two very important ingredients. Vinegar and baking soda. In that bottle, at the bottom of your volcano, you pour your vinegar. Maybe add some red food coloring for effect. When the time is right, you quickly pour your baking soda into the vinegar, and presto, you have your lava flow. And the point of this lesson is to demonstrate a chemical reaction. When the baking soda and vinegar mix, they create carbon dioxide, and that gas bubbles out the top of your volcano. This chemical reaction, we learn, is certain. When these two compounds mix, a chemical reaction always occurs. Well, it's exactly the same in the Christian's heart. When the ingredients of knowledge of sin and forgiveness are combined, the chemical reaction produces vibrant love for God. There's simply no other option. 
Is that spiritual reaction, as it were, happening in your heart? Is the knowledge of your sin and the news of God's forgiving grace overflowing into love for God? A love for God that is evident for all, not in t-shirts and bobbleheads, but a love that moves you to serve Jesus with not a care for what others think of you? If not, what's missing? Do you underestimate the gravity of your sin? Or the grace of the Savior? If it is, praise God, those ingredients don't happen naturally. God put them there. And God sustains them there. But continue to seek their supply from God. We are prone to forget, grow cold, and neglect so great a salvation. If God has done this work in you, you have the same assurance that Christ gave this woman in verse 50. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Love does not save. It gives evidence of our salvation. It is faith that saves. Faith that believes what God has said about our sins and what he says about the forgiveness of sins. And if you have that faith shown in love, Christ bids you to go in peace. How, how ironic that the woman who was least composed in the room was the only one that had peace. No matter what else happens, whatever circumstances or difficulties of the days behind or days ahead, we have peace with God and the unshakable hope of eternal peace in heaven. Let's pray. And Father, we give you great praise. Lord, it is the overflow of our heart in learning of such a great forgiveness in light of the the real blackness of our sin to give you praise. Lord, we love you. We love what you have accomplished in us by the grace of Christ. We thank you for him. Lord, we say that, that he alone is our salvation. Lord, that by, by faith united to him, he is the reason that we have hope, that we have peace. Lord, I pray in meditating on this news that we would overflow in love for you all the more that our love for you would be evident to all who see us, that we serve a wonderful Savior. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, let's conclude our service by worshiping Jesus Christ in love, marveling at the one who even forgives sins. Please stand as we sing Jesus, thank you.